Welcome to Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, this is a man who's made headlines often already in his life, and he's making them in a new way to try to tell the truth with proof. His name is Gaylord Salters. He spent um, decades in prison, 20 years, and then was freed when it, when it was revealed there was prosecutorial misconduct in his case. And he has now become a crusader to help people like himself, whose lives are turned upside down and trying to shine a light on the criminal justice system. Hey, Lewis Soto, so nice to finally have you in on Dateline New Haven. Thanks so much for coming in. Happy to be here, Paul. We've got a lot to talk about today, kind of your story, your brother's story, the books you've been writing, the work you've been doing. But first, we got a little news to, to let people know about, um, starting Monday, June 12th. Yes. There's going to be seven days of Truth With Proof, a, a, rally, a seven-day rally you've put together with all sorts of organizations from the Connecticut NAACP, Yale University's Law and Racial Justice Center, the ACLU. What are the seven days of Truth With Proof? What's going to be happening? So the seven days of Truth With Proof. I'm going to ask you to get close to the mic so we can really hear you and maybe have it point right at you. Can you move the bike to like all point right. right at you? All right. There, there we go. go. Right here you did now. Okay. So the seven days of truth with proof is a derivative from the research that I did while I was in prison fighting my case. And when I started seeing all of these cases being reversed, I started putting together the links with the unscrupulous prosecutors and detectives who were involved in those wrongful convictions. And I seen a lot of them in my case. But this was going on over years, and then I finally started to see individuals being released, and the case is reversed, and I'm still fighting my case at the same time. And because it had grown so ugly, I was caught up in a position of politics because there were too many cases being reversed, and then my case in particular is one that was tried by this prosecutor who has this long history of prosecutorial misconduct and seven people on a national registry of exonerees list. So <clears throat> I had put this together while I was in prison. And when I was, when I was finally able to come home, I was able to get in contact with all the organizations that I reached out to tell my story and through the work that I've been doing, they've seen that it was serious and they begin to sign on. So right now what we're doing is we're using all of these cases that were reversed and we're showing how the same detectives and prosecutors from those cases are actively, well, I would say have active allegations against them from individuals who are still living through continuing wrongful convictions with the same allegations from the same detectives and prosecutors. These allegations included having fake eyewitness testimony, not letting the other side know that you have what's called sculptory evidence, meaning evidence that would show that you couldn't prove that they, they were guilty, that kind of stuff. Yes, yes, fake ID, ID witnesses. We have one, one um, prosecutor who allowed a witness to testify under a false name, and then he made the mistake of going on record and saying that it didn't matter. What he saw is what he saw, but you know, there's a difference. There's a sharp contradiction when one raises his hand to the sky and swears to tell the truth and nothing but the truth on the witness stand, only to find out that you're not even who you say you are. And then the prosecutor vouches for that. 
So we'll be defining those things. And we'll so how's this actually going to happen? Where, who's going to be where and what are they going to be doing? All right. So we're going to be at 157 Church Street. That's in front Federal of the Court department. Is. Yep. In front of the Department of Justice. And that's from uh, June 6, June 12th to June 16th. And then from June 17th to June 18th, we'll be at the New Haven Police and Department. Four hours a day. Yep. Do you have Eleven. permits like for the plaza there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't even play those games because I know how big this is and I know how huge the partners are. Even when I was incarcerated, I always made sure to get permits because I don't want to be shut down. So what's going to happen at these rallies? So you're going to hear you're going to hear PowerPoint presentations from individuals like, say, for instance, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Deskovic of the Deskovic Foundation in New York City. He was wrongfully convicted after detectives forced him to give a false confession on himself. And he spent almost two decades in prison. That's what blew my mind as a reporter, Gaylord, over the years. It started with the Thomas Daniels case in the 90s when people mm. were in prison. We did a story to papers at The Advocate. And we just asked the question, like, you just went to prison for a long time where now the state says you didn't do it. Why did you confess? And, you know, it just blew my mind to realize that people feel they're under the gun, metaphorically, that... If you don't confess, they're gonna, they make you believe they're going to get you for much worse stuff. You can spend a longer time in life. You believe the system's so against you that you see people you think are in charge of a justice system lying or doing something wrong. So the rules are out the window. So if they tell you, you either confess or life's going to be terrible for your mother or I'm going to destroy this person's life or I'm going to keep you in until you're 90 years old in prison, that's what was interesting to me. That's the, and, and that happens so often. So when you talk about that, usually... It's a child, like often they get the child easily. Like Jeffrey Deskovic was a child. And what he's doing is he's going to do this presentation on that. And then I will follow him and I will do the correlation with the Bobby Johnson case and what took place there. Because, you know, the officers told him, listen, you're going to get the death penalty. But if he you was 16 years old, that's the, the book now, uh, The Other Side of Prospect. This was a kid who wasn't in the life. It was completely framed by a detective who was found to have done this often where he gets people to confess things they didn't do and yes, manufacture yes. evidence, and he spent many years in prison. How's he doing, Bobby Johnson? Bobby Johnson is doing all right. I, I haven't um, spoke with him in a little while, but I have visited him. We've talked. He helped me out with a, a documentary that I'm working on, and, you know, I, I always give. He went to live on the shoreline, right? Um, I, I, like I, I don't want to give his yeah. exact location, but... He, he he's still in Connecticut. Like I'll he say got that. out of the city, though. Yeah, because he able to get work and things like that. Well, he struggled. He struggled for a good while. He struggled for a good while, but he was in the hands of good company. I mean, and he his got attorneys. Money, right? yeah. yeah, and he got money. But you still, people's lives are turned upside down. And even though money is nice to get that compensation, because you help to get a person back on track, and then to do the best with their the remainder of their life so that they don't have to struggle for the basics. But at the same time, it also creates a, a, a little bit of confusion amongst people who are not used to having money, and now they see that this person has money, and they, they want in on it and don't even care about what the person has lived through or whatever, but they just want to hear yes when they want to ask for what they want to ask for, and that's the end all. And that usually sends a lot of... Uh, and, of course, the best case of that to talk about is what a tragic story of your brother who got $4.2 million, and then he didn't live very long after that. Yes, yes. So let's get to that. We're reminding people with on Gaylord Salters, 
who is uh, launching seven-day rally, four hours a day in New Haven, called Seven Days of Truth with Proof to expose problems in the criminal justice system that are having people like him spend decades behind bars, the cases that are later revealed to have been based on prosecutorial or police misconduct. So, Gaylor, let's remind people um, about your 1996 case where you were sent to prison for a murder you said you did not commit, a key witness later recanted. What was your case all about? Why did you end up spending 20 years in prison? Funny thing, Paul, everybody thinks it was a murder. It, it's not a murder. Two people were uh, shot with non-life-threatening oh. injuries, and the individuals were involved in a shootout with another car. Oh, it wasn't a murder. No, it wasn't a murder, but this is... it. it, it we have some ugly things in our criminal justice system that we have to work on, but to stick to the script and answer your question, these individuals had been involved in a shootout with another car, and they crashed, and they fled the scene. The police report says guns visible. So when the police caught up with them, they both were interviewed on two separate occasions and both were unable to identify their assailants. Mm-hmm. And then police found a gun, a handgun, in one of the car in, in the car that the uh two guys fled. Then an officer rode with the guy to the hospital. Excuse me, he rode to the guy with the hospital and got him to change his statement once they got to the hospital because of he had this gun charge against him now. So when he got to the hospital, all he needed to do was say my name. And when you read the statement, that's it. He said, Gilbert Salter was in the car. I couldn't identify anybody else. And how did your name come up in the first place with the cop? Well, at that time, I'll be honest, the police, I was somebody who the police wanted to arrest but had no evidence of me uh, hustling to, was to arrest Vinny, me. Or who was it, the detective? Was it Vinny? The detective? Which detective was after you? The detective, well, it was... I would say the New Haven Police Department, period, because when you look at the um, the police reports, they talk about everything. But the truth of the matter is they found that opportunity right then and, and there. And why did they want to have you arrested? Well, I was I was hustling. At that time, I was hustling, and, and at that time I had grown smarter. I realized that um, if you're going to be hustling, you need to be so far away from violence because the two just don't mix. And being so you could have somebody else do the dirty work. Yeah, being no, no, not to have anybody else do the dirty work. I'm talking violence. about business and violence don't mix oh. point blank. Period. So what kind of hustling were you doing? What kind of business? It was it was narcotics. The so, usual. so can you avoid violence and narcotics when other people want to come on your turf? Isn't that what happens? A- absolutely. That is something that the media and people perpetuate to sell these stories. Just like the prosecutors, they perpetuate that. This right here was like the gift and the curse for me because I had recently went to prison, and it was because in the early 90s I had believed in that ignorance. Like in the early 90s, and then when I went to prison, I realized, like, how, how am I broke? Well, what happened the first time? How did you get involved? I had gotten uh, into the culture instead of paying attention to what I was supposed to be here for. Like we come from these adverse backgrounds where most of us single parent homes don't have enough money. What, what to, part of town did you grow up in? I grew up in Quinnipiac, Fairhaven, mm-hmm. yes. So we come from those adverse backgrounds and then eventually we start 
engage in, in the things that we see in our So was your revelation the first time in prison that I got it when I go back, I shouldn't get, I'll stay away from violence because that's what it gets you on? Well, at that point, my revelation was I had, I had been, it was the early 90s, I made a couple of dollars, but at the end of it, it was all gone. The truth of the matter is that ill-gotten gain doesn't last, period. So but, what, what, did you, what did they arrest you for when you went to prison the first time? When I was in prison at, at that point, I was arrested for a gun charge. Mm -hmm. I was serving a one-year sentence on a gun charge. Yep. So you came back out and you said then you got smarter. They wanted to get you for being involved in narcotics, but you weren't going to hand them the metaphorical gun to get you with. No. I had gotten smarter in that if you are doing business, you don't need to be involved with anything that has violence attached to it. And I say that people perpetuate the thing like, oh, they're turf and this, that. They do that to make the stories more tantalizing. The prosecutors need that type of so evidence. So why do people get shot in the drug trade? Why was that happening? Well, I can't. I mean, people in inner cities get shot for a number of different reasons. You know, you have things. Some of the things that we are trying to end now, like the, 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 the problems that individuals inherit, these younger individuals inherit like tribal beefs like from this side of town this side of town there's always been there's this this little strife or whatever and then you know our kids come up with that same thing carrying that but right now the good thing is that i work with a lot of guys who come from the 80s and who have been through it and have the experience so we are trying to stop the bleeding right now that's great so you came of age in in the 80s and q terrace yes that's in the when 80s, virginia the henry was sort of the Remember uh, the damn it group? What was it called? Drugs don't work, damn it, or something. She used to be the tenant organizer before they tore down the place. Yeah, she. I guess her her son Darkus was arrested with your brother, right? That that's her grand. Oh that's yeah, yeah. Name. You're talking about. Uh, well, I heard you say Virginia, but yeah, that's his grandmother, Virginia, and his mother. They they're both passed on, so I really don't like to talk about them. They're but the great truth, people. They 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 were. I great remember people. going to her house. Yeah, and and. At this point in life, I really do appreciate their work because they worked so hard to create a safer environment for us, whereas we were young, ignorant, and didn't realize what was going on. And the police were like an army there in Q Terrace back in when you were growing up. I mean, you know, the kind of way they'd bust down the door. Oh, enough of the, yeah. the police were crazy. And there were police officers involved in the drug trade. Yeah. There were police officers involved in the drug trade. So the, the guy from uh, Bobby Johnson's case... I knew him well. I didn't know who he was until I got the information from Bobby Johnson's case, and then I learned of his nickname. But I remember when, uh, even before I started hustling, like I was 10 years old, they came through the projects one time, and, and he's roughing me up, frisking me, and it, it, it was the first time I ever had been frisked by a police officer like this. So this dude is... Looking through my pockets. This is Willoughby? Pulling my pants. Huh? Clarence Willoughby? Yes. Yes, it, it was him. It was him. His nickname was Horsey. But one of the things that I, I, I do right now, with all of the information that we have, we're keeping it diplomatic because we do have an end goal here. And the truth of the matter is that we want to create a national conversation with respect to why absolute immunity for prosecutors need to be modified mm. so tell me now what the, they did wrong in your case and what you were fighting for 20 years to get the word out about so 
you see these two individuals, they had no information with respect to who the four assailants were in the car that had shot at them. But after one of the individuals had gotten caught with a gun on that night, they forced him to just name my name. If, if you could just say his name out of the four, we don't care who, who the people Do you remember are. Numero Dos, that the, there was a Spanish-speaking detective who when he had someone, they admitted this in open court, he, if someone's Spanish-speaking, he would point to the picture, like he'd have an array of photos, and he'd oh. say Numero Dos, and they'd put the person in the number two slot they wanted him to identify. Listen, New Haven had a, a lot of tactics, and the good thing, that's why I say seven days of truth with proof, because I don't want you to take my word. But what I do want you to take is this Supreme Court's word and what they said about this individual and what they say continuously about the New Haven Police Department with tapes missing, statements missing, pre-interviews. And this is a repetitive thing. And you'll, you'll see that this is the information that we're, we're, we're showing. We're showing how we got here. We're showing how all these wrongful convictions came about exonerees and those who are living through continuing wrongful convictions and you'll see that it's the same officers the same detectives the same prosecutors and the same allegations so, so we're talking to Gaylord Salters about the criminal injustice in the criminal justice system and the upcoming seven days of truth with proof rally with him and a network of people who have been either exonerated or released from prison after prosecutorial misconduct got revealed and are working with advocates here on Dateline New Haven, WNHH-FM. So, Gaylord, you end up spending, what was it, so it's so funny I said murder. How many years did you end up spending? I ended up spending 20 years. But what was so, the sentence? It, it, it was a 40-year sentence. Based on one witness, 40 years suspended right? on Twitter. That, that particular person that they had changed his statement. So it was that individual, they promised to get rid of his gun charge and Mind you, back then, it was a mandatory year in prison. There was no way around it. So after I get arrested, I turned myself in immediately because of previously what happened when we talked about earlier when, when I used to be in the streets. And I, I, I figured you can't be um, running from the police. You can't be on the run. That and, becomes the new charge. That's the, that's the problem. So I had... As soon as I heard about this frivolous thing, I marched right down to that police station, turned myself in, got out. And a few weeks afterwards, they found the guy red-handed committing a shooting with the gun that the victims were shot with. And the problem was he lived precisely on the scene where the victims were shot. But New Haven Police Department didn't care because they wanted me, and that's the direction that they were going. And they stuck with it. But what that did was it really, really messed the case up. And my case sat for six years. No wow. trial, no nothing. Wow. Six what was years. it like living those six years? It was, was uh, hanging over your head. I, I, I was just waiting, waiting to uh, see what was going on with this. But also, I was watching the police set other people up. So it, it, it just was a crazy thing for me. But when, you know, I found out how, how, much of a joke this case was and my attorney we had no anticipation that this thing would go to trial we we just knew that it would get um dismissed and who was the attorney my attorney was john williams john okay, r williams he's just retiring now live right upstairs yeah. yes yes and when you see the, the transcript you're going to see how john r williams went above and beyond because he needed to find out what happened to that gun charge for that witness right 
and the state came to my trial. Now, mind you, me and this witness are arrested in the same case. We're essentially co-defendants. The case number is 79471. Every document generated from case 79471 is going to be in both of our files. What they did was they secretly funneled his case to the New York uh, to the New, uh, New Haven court system by giving him a summons. So that way he wasn't arrested. There's nothing that, that, that shows that he was arrested. There's no arrest information. We tried to get it from the New Haven Police Department. They say they don't have it. And we're trying to get the actual summons, but there's, they say they don't have anything, which is just out of this world bananas. But once he went to court, they put that quid pro quo together, and that was he received accelerated rehabilitation for felony gun charge. And you know accelerated rehabilitation is for lower-level offenses. And it gets erased from your record right after 13 months or 11 months if you don't get in trouble again. But they were very strategic. What they wanted to do was erase his record, which they did, and then put me on trial after it's erased. But they had a problem. He continued to get arrested while on accelerated rehabilitation. And once you get arrested on accelerated rehabilitation, it's over. You have to go to trial. But he was the state star witness, and they worked it out for him. And these documents are what I have to show that you knew you were the prosecutor on his gun case, and you showed up in a separate courtroom when he was arrested, and you didn't bring up the fact that he was on accelerated rehabilitation. Was that, the, was that the exculpatory evidence that they didn't provide oh, to you? That, that's one piece. That's one piece. It's so much. When I went to trial, we, we wanted to know what happened with his gun charge. The prosecutor said they don't know. Is that James Clark? <laughs> James He's Clark, case, yeah. we, we, we're, we're trying to be easy with this okay. because, like I said, his name came up every time. It's yeah. a diplomatic. I mean, it's when, when it comes to him, it's almost like you can't ever get away from it because everybody knows it. And when they hear the cases, they're going to automatically say, oh, that's that's him. Mm-hmm. So we've got um, attorneys who are coming out because they've represented individuals who are wronged by him. And attorneys are going to come out and do PowerPoints and, and, and speak about that. So you have seven days of this. And then, so then you, 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 you did have to go to prison. You went where? Uh, well, I bounced around from all the level four facilities, McDougal, Cheshire, Corrigan. And what was it like to be trying to survive day to day in prison? Well, I believe you were set up and fight to get released. How did you do it each day? How did you structure your day? How did you approach it mentally to, to turn I, it around? I had watched my brother and childhood friends be set up for murder. And so I was set up after my, my case happened before theirs, but it had lingered on so long. They brought them to trial prior to me. But while I was in there, I knew that they needed help because they had essentially life sentence. I got the 40 years. I may come out and, and, you know, I may still see life, but they had life sentences that there was nothing but you come out of here in a box and that was a part of my motivation because I needed to get money up to help them. But more importantly, I needed to get money together to help my children just in case if I didn't come out alive. And that's what led me to start the publishing company. I started writing books. And had you I, written before? Like, how did you get started writing? Well, when I, came, when I came to prison, I heard about this uh, 
these books, these urban books that were on fire, that market was on fire. And I seen that as an opportunity. Well, maybe I should write something like that. Like, were you a good writer already? Had you done well? No, I developed my skills in prison. And how'd you do that? Just reading and then just getting, um, ordering materials on how to write and how to start stories. So it wasn't stories. a prison writing program? No, it wasn't a prison writing. Everything was self-educated. And what was some of the first books you ordered? The first book that I, uh, you said ordered? Or got in prison to read? Well, uh, a variety of books because you have books that are already there, individuals have. Do you remember any books that really made an impression on you, an inspiration? Actually, and, and this is going to shock a lot of people, but Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, Mm-hmm. really, really, it, it left an impression How on so? me. How so? What do you remember about that? Because some of the things, while I didn't agree with it, there are things that I definitely agree with. And that's like um, when it comes to being able to give when you want to give. You know what I'm saying? This is my money. I work hard for it. I don't want to be forced to give it away. And that was something that stuck with me the way that she had put that a lot of people you know they say that she's a capitalist and that's capitalist nation and and all that stuff but i i i firmly believe in that you understand what i'm saying and that's one thing you know my brother was uh, a kind guy you know what i'm saying but you can't let people take advantage of you because they will they don't believe in no you know what i'm saying they they, they want you to say yes and if they can bend your will they're going to at any cost and for me it's like I'm going to do what I want to, when I want to, because I've earned this. And so how did you develop the writing? I mean, you wrote books, you self-published books, you've written two, two novels. Yeah, a- a- actually, updated um, one. yeah, three, a total of three. So I started writing, when I started writing, I was sending the uh, manuscripts out to publishers, commercial publishers, and then some wouldn't even write me back, but... I realized how hard it was to become published. And what were the novels about? I wrote uh, the Urban Money, money the Murder Urban, and Drug Money Flow. Murder and Drug Flow. That right there. That was my first novel. And then I had a uh, history. I have a history with the church. God fearing man, my mother. You know, what I'm saying we always went to church. But the folks in the church heard that I had wrote a book, and they all wanted to, to read the book. Some of them read it, and it, it's a fiction book. But my mother wanted me to do some some different type of content some good content and i realized that you know i need to write a book to pay homage to her and i was in the cell with my brother at this time when i told him because it was an epiphany for the first time i realized all that my mother had been through trying to keep her children safe from our own environment and she didn't know that it was a losing battle you know what i'm saying she bust her hump she went out there working, trying to do the best she can, but her checks didn't always meet the needs of our household. And while she's at work and we have free time and outside of our door is, you know, all the chaos that comes with poverty, it was just a losing situation. And once the streets had creeped in, you know, I had siblings get addicted the the the, the the drug epidemic in the 80s was crazy. I Rocket, had siblings. Big, yeah, 80s, yeah. Late 80s. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very hard. But, um, you know, I wanted to write that book to her and pay homage to my baby. And I told my brother, this is what I'm doing. And I'm writing this. And that's when I started working on Mama Bear. I worked on Mama Bear. I finished that thing. And uh, 
like within a couple of weeks of putting it out now a commercial publisher reached me he reached out to me in prison you know what i'm saying paul who is that it, it, durant's publishing Mm -hmm. Durant's publishing reached out to me in prison looking to do a deal for my book Mama Bear. But at that time, Durant's publishing didn't know that I was the owner of the publishing company and they didn't understand what my overall goals and ambitions were. And it would have been too early because I would have lost out on what I know that I'm worth. But it was very, very humbling and, you know, gratifying at the same time to have this commercial publisher who was validation yeah 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 and, and write me i still got the letter so i made posts and you, you see my whole journey while i was in prison you see the journey would, would go get it publishing and what i was doing my daughter ran the company on the outside i i, I gave birth to it on the inside my ideas and let him and we just made things happen so eventually i needed a broaden my horizons so I started searching for bigger deals and, and, and things that would push my company forward and I had, was able to close a global distribution a global distribution deal for go get it publishing so that's why you see the two different books you'll see the uh, first cover with mama bear and then after the global distribution deal I wanted to make it even more catchier with respect to the, 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 the cover, the book cover, and the interior design, just making it more professional for the whole world because this is my introductory to the whole world. So that's what I did, and it, it was a good thing. I went to um, Goodman University. They have an E-Net program that help entrepreneurs, and so I took that while I was in there, and my professors actually helped me read the jargon in the, the contract for the global distribution deal because accounting is hard. You know what I'm saying? And I just happened to be blessed at being a time where I was in an accounting class and these other classes. So my accountant professor, shout out to Professor Rotundo from Goodman University, Matt Connell, Dr. Matt Connell. They helped me with this thing all the way through. And um And we're talking to Gaylord Salters, who's the organizer behind a many organization run Seven days of protests coming up in New Haven on starting July, June 6th, June 12th. Seven days of truth with proof about injustices in the criminal justice system. So you just mentioned being in a cell with your brother. Your brother's name was Johnny Johnson. He was a group of, I believe it was four individuals from Q Terrace who were, um, were charged and convicted of a murder. And that was a murder. Yep. But then they were exonerated in 2013 and got $4.2 million each because the state admitted they had treated it so wrong. Um, you were in a cell with him at one point? I was in a cell with him. Yeah. What I was, was in the circumstance? Were we both in the same prison? We, we, we both were in the same prison. Which so prison was that? It was in McDougal. Mm -hmm. It was in McDougal. So the way it works is this. Whenever people are charged in the same case, they usually split them up because they'll, they'll, they'll make a deal with one of the defendants to... Uh, either lie or tell the truth on the other defendant for a deal or whatever. But in this particular case, in their case, there was none of that because everybody knew that they were set up and it just was a hard thing to deal with. So everybody was in the same unit and you'll check Connecticut history. That's rare for four. How were you in the same cell as your brother? I had came to that prison. They were already in that prison. I had came to that prison and then I had uh, requested to be moved into the cell with my So you brother. were cellmates with your brother? Cellmates with my What's brother. What's that like? Yeah. 
it, it's it, kind of perversion about like sort of the criminal the military uh prison context complex that you end up being roommates with your brother in a prison cell yeah and actually when when i started uh, mama bear 2010 it was it was by chance because we had been in the cell previously and i was telling them everything about what i'm doing go get it publishing and everything but in 2010 i got transferred to cheshire and he had followed and that's when i really started uh writing that book and really putting it down Did you guys have long talks at night about your lives and things like oh gosh yeah yeah and and this is what allowed me the foresight this is what allowed me or should i say the hindsight to see everything that my mother had went through and just our overall lives coming from these adverse backgrounds because it's like we see we remember starting off hustling by carrying bags from the grocery store to the patron's car. We would stand out in front of Pegnataro's on Grand and Ferry, and we would carry those bags, and we would accumulate money like that. We would shovel snow and accumulate money like that, and then whenever the show, but there was no snow on the ground to shovel, we had to pivot, and we got a lawnmower. Branched out a little bit from the, uh, the poverty, different neighborhoods where neighbors had lawns, and we started mowing lawns. And then, just imagine, you have the cocaine epidemic. It, 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 terrorists it, got hit real hard with that in the late 80s. Yeah, it did. It did. So you have that, and, and it hit neighborhoods all across America, inner cities all across America. And then you have these kids who are struggling, trying to make a way, me and my brother. And all I wanted to do, I couldn't wait till I was 14 years old so I can get that summer job, and that's like a real job. But by the time I was 14, it, it was over. You know what I'm saying? The drugs that hit the community, the chaos was there, the um, admiration was there. And when I say the admiration, you know, you have these younger generations looking up to the older guys who are out there in the streets making this money. Younger kids have no idea of what they're in for. You know what I'm saying? That this is this is a very bad move, but you're ignorant. You're young. And... That right there is like the introduction into that world. It came in little, but it's just that need. Even going to the store for the hustlers, the older hustlers in the projects. I'm, I'm, I'm out there. I'm willing. Let's go. Because the amount of money that you're going to get, the change, it's a lot of money. So I'm caught up in this cycle. So you know it's only a matter of time. And then when that time came, that's, that's you know, it's like a downturn in life. Because we're not equipped for that. We're not, we, nobody knows that. But now at this point in life, with the experience that I have and having been around so many other pr- brothers who have been affected by that era, whole families, like what you have going on with the commutations with Mr. Taubes, Attorney Taubes, and the returning citizens that are speaking up for second chances and acknowledging that things weren't perfect. That everybody, even when we do this this protest, it's the same thing. Law enforcement had no idea of how to deal with what was going on in the 80s. They just went with it. Most of them end up engaging in that activity. A lot of them were under duress, you know what I'm saying, going out. They, they, there was no match for the community. But as they started to get a hold on it, they used tactics that were just so illegal so egregious and 
those tactics are what have brought us to today. And we're talking about that with Gaylord Salters here on Dateline New Haven. So your brother Johnny Johnson, was you were in prison with him, but he got out first. 2013, the state said, we really did you wrong. $4.2 million given to each of the defendants to start a new life. Johnny got $4.2 million. He moved down to Wilmington, North Carolina. He started a nightclub, a yeah. whole music business. He'd been yeah. a music promoter. And then he was tragically shot dead in November 2021. Mm. Where, where were you when you heard about that? Were you behind bars still? I was in prison, and that was the driving force for me to go ahead and, and file this modification. So it was the modification that really sent me home. Of your sentence? Yeah. Based on the modification. And who had to decide on that? Uh, Judge Allender decided that. Oh, Judge Allender, John Allender. Yes. And the good thing is that, you know, throughout my 20 years, I have a fingerprint. You look at it, everything speaks for itself. The good work. Inside, I'm in prison, yet I'm outside of these walls, and that's what really, really... So I didn't realize that it was uh, your brother's death. Did you, did you find out why he got killed? Well, I, I just know of the reports that were in the, the newspapers. It was a robbery going bad. It was uh, the individuals were caught on the scene, and, you know, I know I had to get home to my mother. Mm. I had no intention... Uh, filing for that modification because of the position that I had with respect to the chief state's attorney's office reviewing my case and Patrick J. J. Griffin being the man who sent my case off to that conviction integrity review unit, period. So with him being the head state's attorney of New Haven at the time and shipping that off, I, I, I felt a level of comfort that justice was in my realm. You know what I'm saying? That it was about to happen. So I just was sitting back and, and, and waiting for it to take its process, waiting for the process to take place. But during that time, I had lost my brother. And I know my mother, she needed me. So I filed for that modification. And then I knew I would get it because they had changed the laws and put it in the judge's hands. So... When they changed the law and put it in the judge's hands. And did the state fight it or were they? Oh, no, they didn't fight it. They didn't fight it, but they went on the record and they made sure they said, oh, this, this, we're not opposing his modification, but we're not saying that uh, something to the effect that we're not saying that he's innocent either. They wanted to put that on That's the record. That's always been the catch-22, like in cases mm -hmm. with Scott Lewis. He was in 18 years in prison after the FBI discovered that a crooked cop who was working for the mob in the drug trade had set him up. And I remember the, the prosecutor saying, well, that shows that the case was wrong, but once you're convicted in the court, this had to be overturned. The state Supreme Court said, you're actually guilty and still proven innocent once there's a verdict in their eyes. And it mm -hmm. seems like that might be what needs to change now. That, that, that is terrible. That's why you'll see these Injustice Amongst Us t-shirts, and it says guilty till proven innocent, yeah. right? And that actually was the rule in the state Supreme Court. That's what was overturned at the federal level in the Scott Lewis case, was they, the state said that even though the state didn't contest that the cop was crooked, Vincent Rauchy, had a long history, mm -hmm. but they didn't mm -hmm. contest that he was involved with drug dealers to whom a debt was owed. Yeah, they didn't contest any of that, but they said you got to prove you're innocent now. Once we got you once, and they believe that too, um, uh, Gaylord. They, I would have long conversations with people. They actually believe, and then they kind of evolved over time. They, uh, as society, learned more and more because the work of what you people like you do to try to get the facts out about how real human beings' lives are affected 
when we don't live up to the standards we say we have in law oh, yeah. about evidence, what it means for a person's life. Because you could see, I could sometimes try to get in the heads of people. You say, why would they do such a thing to want to keep somebody still in prison? And then in their mind, it's like the rules are stacked against them to get the quote-unquote bad guys. So sometimes, like, they feel so many people walk free who actually did bad things that they'll say, let's get the guy. We want to get Gaylord. Let's get the guy in the car to say it was him. Because they can feel like, well, it's him anyway. And I've talked to other people who aren't cops. Say, like, what do you think about this case? And they often will say, well, they got him. They got him for that, but he did other stuff, so it's okay. Yeah. It, it, and what do you say to people in society who say that as long as we get somebody who's done some kind of crime on something, even if it's not for what they really did, society is better off? What do you, what do you say to them? I, I, I say to them, make sure that you show up at Injustice Amongst the Seven Days of Truth with Proof, because we're going to show you why we have to stop that, and we're going to show you why absolute immunity needs to be modified. Because when you talk like that, Paul, the prosecutors, they've wired themselves to go with the premise of guilty till proven innocent. That's not the law. It's innocent until proven guilty. And I'm also thinking about Gaylord growing up at Q Terrace at a time where there was lawlessness among law enforcement. And I'm not saying it's not now, but that was sort of like highly sanctioned at the time. You grew up, am I right, thinking that what is called the law wasn't really right. They weren't really following rules. So if you were to say it's okay to send people to prison, even if we can't really prove what we think they did, so we get them for something else that they didn't do, it's okay in the end because, quote-unquote, the right person went to prison. Does that risk throwing out any notion of rules so that when Gaylord and his brother are growing up in Q-Terrorists, they have no reason to believe that following the rules are gonna, is going to get you a fair path? Yeah, it, it, it does. It, it taints it severely because when you see individuals who have been delegated the task of upholding the law and individuals who have been delegated the task of upholding justice doing the complete opposite, that creates a huge, a huge problem. I just try to put myself in your mind growing up there why you would think that the people dealing drugs or shooting people are doing it were the bad guys as opposed to the police officers. Well, uh, when, when you put that comparison there, if you have somebody who's breaking the law, all right, you know that person is breaking the law. But what if you and, can't believe in the law if the people who are enforcing the law don't follow the law? That, that, that's a slippery slope. That is the conditions that they create. Because when you have police officers coming through, taking drugs, taking money, and leaving you, I mean, some people are like, all right, cool. And, you know, it's just like, it creates a medley of chaos and it blurs lines between law enforcement and individuals who are breaking the law. And more importantly, it really, really causes problems with respect to public safety. When you talk about, Oh, well he did this. So if they got him on that and a lot of people believe in that, a lot of people believe in that. I know people really good. People said that to me when I tell them about the Scott Lewis case. Cause I was talking mm. about that for years. I said, well, you know, so he did steal drugs. I said, yeah, but like a really crooked cop, it was all mid, it was crooked cop working for the mob and the drug dealer set him up on false evidence that he shot dead somebody. What happens to the rules? They say, well, at least we got behind bars someone who was causing trouble. And that's the premise that they, they moved on. And you're going to see that in a lot of these cases because most of us come from these inner city neighborhoods, the New Hallville, the New Hallville neighborhood, uh, 
the tray you have the jungle i mean these are neighborhoods that had gotten names when these when the epidemic had came right and it sort of perpetuated the problems but it created an opportunity for prosecutors and detectives to take advantage of already vulnerable people and what they did was when you when you look at it and we'll be um demonstrating this at the seven days of truth with pre you're going to see how prosecutors and detectives were elevated for exhibiting bad behavior, bad behavior rather than demoted. You're going to see how police chief after police chief allowed it. They mismanaged their organization. They empowered these detectives to do what they did. And now we have this problem. The only good thing here when I think about uh, the police is that, um, I don't know if you know, I worked on a, a campaign with Alderman Streeter. And I really got the people who were who came from this life to come out and go through the streets and, and go door to door. Older guys who really know what it is. And, and, and we won that. But I ran into uh, Chief Jacobs and I told him how ugly it was getting with my case with respect to the information that was still being hidden. No, it's just still seeking to have it, not just have your sentence modified, be exoneration. So it's off your record. Yeah. Yeah, because who's going to make that call? John Doyle is going to make that call. Why does he make it, not his boss? So the way it works is... He's the, the state's attorney in New Haven. He's the state's attorney in New Haven. The Conviction Integrity Review Unit is at the chief state's attorney's office. They do their investigation. They do their recommendation, and then they send it off to the state's attorney for that district. And his boss can't tell him what to do. I, I see. I don't know which way that so goes where's it in particular. So where with the committee reviewing your case? Have they come up with a recommendation? Well, they, they've had more than enough time. But the truth of the matter, Paul, is my case, as you, as you mentioned, the prosecutor's name, it's one of his. And my case at this point, being so ugly, to exonerate me means that there's no case that's going to stand with allegations against so when him. So when does the report come out, do you know? I don't know. It could be any day. It, 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 it's on them. It's on them. Then, I'm, I'm so I want to bring you back to your brother for a second. So when he was tragically murdered, you said, I got to get out of prison, help my mom. What about, what did you feel personally about your brother who had been your cellmate it, dying after he'd gotten out free and won his liberty? What, 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 how did that affect you personally? It affected me gravely because when you break it down, you think about, how many years you actually had together, you know? And my brother, uh, up until he was 17, then he was in prison. And then we both were in, in, in prison. So I had him from up until 17, and I really, really tried my best to keep him. Are you older? I am older. How yeah. many years? I'm older by four, uh, three years. So you had him until 17, and then you're back in prison, you had him again. No. When you were 17 cellmates. is when he was arrested. Yeah. 17 was, is when he was arrested. He posted bond. He made bond, but they had brought him right back for a probation violation. So he was in there since he was 17. And then I came in a couple of years after. And, you know, those 17 years of life on the outside is all that we had. You also had the years together cellmates, or was that not long? Well, you have the, we, we didn't get years in the cellmates. 
It was a few months. It, it was short time. So what was going through your mind when you heard he, in addition to the issue of getting out to help your mother, how did it personally affect you knowing you were looking for your liberation? Mm-hmm. Your brother had gotten freed. He got the money. He built a life. And from people I talked to, he'd always help all these other people too because yeah. they don't want money from him, right? For help, he helped his niece, I think it was, or uh, get, get into college and a career. What, did you, what went through your mind as someone who just lost a brother? who went down the same path you were trying to walk? Well, I mean, it, it, it was rough. It was a big loss. It was it, it, it was just very personal. What did it make you think about getting on the outside? Repeat that again? What did it make you think about what happens when you get freed, if you were going to get freed like him? Well, honestly, it just made me that much more fervent in my work. You know what I'm saying? I had already started this. And when you look through the first book, before the global distribution deal, you'll see at the end my status in my case, and it, you'll see it says, um, you know, where my case was at the appellate level. And I was just waiting to be free to come home, but to not be able to come home to him being there was really, really catastrophic because there was a lot of things that we needed to work out. Gaylord, thank you for being so open with us about your very moving story. Yes, indeed. You, you're taking the fight, you, you're taking the lemons you got, and you're making some lemonade. Mm-hmm. That lemonade's called Seven Days of Truth with Proof Rally with organizations like the NAACP, Yale's Law and Racial Justice Center, can't get ACLU, etc. You're going to have seven days of rally starting June 12th from 11 to 3 each day. Where can people find out more about this and get involved? You can go to Injustice Amongst Us at, on Instagram. You can also follow me on Instagram at author, L-O-R, the author Lord underscore. And definitely go to gogetitpublishing.com. You can support me there through buying merchandise, books. And remember, everything that I do, I do come out of my own pocket with my work in the community that's right here. I get assistance from time to time from my friends, definitely. Alex Taubes, got other individuals who help out. But largely, I, I, I try to make my own way. Not that I'm too good to accept help, because I will accept help, but I just think that people respect people who are doing things for themselves rather than coming for a handout. Yeah, that's all. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. And good luck with your work going forward, your writing and your activism. Yes, yes. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nora Grace Flood working the controls with the plum as usual here. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free mm. from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.